Good evening. Welcome to Retrace. There is more to say about outsiders, power, and waste, so now we're going to say it. This is Retrace segment number 38. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. It's 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. Retrace is about what's going on out there. On Friday, Retrace 33, Re33, segment 33, we talked about power, we talked about outsiders, and we talked about waste. There's more to say about it. I thought of something that needs to be said, and then also a correction and a clarification. All right. Um, We were at the part where we were talking about perception and power uh, and deception and talking about whether you care about what people think and how that can affect uh, (laughs) what I'm going to call the microeconomics of your power. But I'll explain microeconomics if if that word doesn't – isn't clear in your mind in a second here. But – it sounds boring, but it's really important that we think of it that way. Anyway, I thought of this thing that I was like, where did I hear this? The, 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 you know, the, the, this, this phrase, this is the phrase, um, uh, to be the, the satis- to, uh, talking about people who are satisfied to possess the reality rather than the appearance of power. The reality rather than the appearance of power. That captures the distinction that I'm making or that I was trying to make on Friday. Caring what people think and wanting power or caring about power versus just caring about power, caring about the reality of power rather than the appearance of power. Okay, well, it was Carol Quigley, the historian Carol Quigley. Um, and, uh, and, and he's also quoted by the later historian, Neil Ferguson. But anyway, uh, let me just read what's in the notes for uh, Retrace 33. Uh, the, story, the historian Carol Quigley says, an elite secret society formed in 1891 by Cecil Rhodes William T. Stead and Reginald Beloyal Brett persisted at least into the middle twentieth into the mid twentieth century on the basis of power without publicity. Now I'm quoting Quigley from um, from the Anglo American establishment. This organization has been able to conceal its existence quite successfully, and many of its most influential members, satisfied to possess the reality rather than the appearance of power, are unknown even to close students of British history. This is the more surprising when we learn that one of the chief methods by which this group works has been through propaganda. Okay, that's on pages uh, three, page three to five. It's also quoted by Ferguson in The Square and the Tower, Neil Ferguson, Square and the Tower, 2017, on page 157. Um, okay, so he, here's where that gets us. So first of all, I just love that idea, that, that, that phrase, satisfied with the, the reality rather than the appearance of power. Uh, but Quigley and Ferguson totally disagree about the Milner Group, the Rhodes-Milner Group. I won't get into what the Rhodes-Milner Group is, but but let's just say Quigley claimed that it was an extremely important um, informal organization. And uh, and it's like – and what Quigley wrote in Tragedy and Hope, which is an earlier book of his, and then the Anglo-American establishment uh, about this group is quoted by conspiracy theorists ad nauseum. Uh, because it's so, it seems, so, it's con- it, Quigley is a really convincing historian. I mean, if you read things that are not what he wrote about these conspiracy-related topics, he's a very credible source. He, you know, he, he writes like someone who is exactly who he seems to be. He was a professor at Georgetown. He, his most famous student was um, uh, President Bill Clinton. Um, very popular course. He, he taught a very popular course on uh, 
the what became the book the evolution of civilizations um which is a fantastic book by the way i read that before i read any of this conspiracy stuff uh but i think i first heard about quigley because of his conspiracy connections anyway um the one thing is that the Anglo-American establishment came out in 1981. I think he died in 77. This is supposedly a manuscript found by someone who then published it. And it's mentioned in like the original edition, but then not subsequent editions. So there's all kinds of conspiracy, right? Uh, or potential thereof. Um, but, but Quigley is like, he's sort of the serious, but he's sort of like the Noam Chomsky of historians in, in that, you know, Noam Chomsky is sort of the Noam Chomsky of um, political commentators or political historical, historical contrarian commentators. I don't know. I, I, there's something very similar about the two. They both are, are taken very seriously in their day jobs. Chomsky is a linguist and, and Quigley is a historian, but then they both get on to conspiracy-related stuff and then nobody really agrees about how deep the rabbit hole goes and what they're really implying, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, but then Neil Ferguson, the latter historian, Who's, who's our contemporary and who has written lots of good stuff uh, and done lots of good scholarship, he, he disagrees about the Milner Group. In fact, he says uh, the reality of this group, the, the, the Rhodes-Milner Group, was less thrilling. The group resembled nothing more than the junior fellows of an Oxford college on an extended reading holiday. So totally just the opposite, right? Like this is just, he's, Neil Ferguson is like, yeah, whatever, okay, he's making some big claims here, but we're sober historians now. There's no more of whatever, whatever fever caught hold of Quigley. Um, and he's citing, he's, he does a little weird, he cites May Milner's Kindergarten, but I don't see where that is in his books. I don't know. So anyway, I haven't read these guys thoroughly. I've read a lot of, but I'm, you know, I'm not. Okay. So that presents us with a problem. When historians disagree, we must decide which claims to believe and perhaps which historian to trust. So like on the one hand, you've got what they say. And on the other hand, you've got who they are. And then can you like just turn the switch on one of them and say, I trust you. And then all these green statements, because every, if you trust them, everything they say is true to you and you believe it. Uh, that's what you want, right? Because, oh man, if the Quigley stuff is true, it's so fascinating. And if the, if Ferguson stuff is true, it's not so fascinating. He's not, I mean, he, he's a good historian and he's got some novel ideas and he's definitely done his legwork and homework and, um, but he's he's very poo poo on 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 conspiracy theory. Um, you know, he's very conventional on that stuff, and so it's not as exciting. So let's let's hope that Quigley's right. That's more interesting, right? Let's 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 declare our biases. Think about this: two historians disagree, and this probably applies to any of the relevant professor, professions. Um, first, who's the better historian, or who's the better political analyst, or who's the better military strategist, or who's the better? artificial intelligence engineer who's better at, at their day job that's the first question you got to answer and then oftentimes you have to answer the scholar who's the better scholar being a scholar is not the same skill set as as other things it's a very sort of read a lot of stuff that's not exciting and not fun and don't don't drift and don't doze off and don't miss any of it be willing to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and find nothing for a long time who's got that stamina and that self-control and, and, and capacity for attention to to detail even amidst oceans of boredom okay I've, I've i've dipped into these waters and i know what a good scholar is capable of because i can see what i am not capable of and what i would have to be capable of to become a good scholar okay who's a better thinker being a good historian being a good scholar does not mean you're a good thinker 
There are lots of people who just do not recognize the power of biases. They don't think that they have any. Um, they, they haven't proven themselves or been proven wrong enough in life to realize how easy it is to be wrong, no matter how, I mean, even about your own memories. Oliver Sacks, Speak Memory, that essay he wrote, he's like, he believed that this thing happened to him. And then he, you know, found compelling evidence that it didn't happen to him. He, his memory had just sort of woven it into his, his history as opposed to some... Um, Who's a better thinker? Whose judgment is better? Kind of related to thinking, but it's also like judging is guessing, guessing and intelligence. We're talking about, uh, oh, what is his name? I always forget the guy's name. He needs a better name. I always forget it. Guessing and intelligence, Oxford mind. Get, get, um, it'll come back to me. I'll cite it in the notes, but I've talked about him many times. I don't know why I can't, I can never remember his name. Judgment. Who, who's better at guessing the right answer? Either the right answer about reality or the right answer about the future, you know, maybe in predictions. Who's got better access? If Quigley was given access to the Rhodes-Milner Group's internal documents, he had better access than someone who didn't. Did Ferguson have that? Did Ferguson have better access because he came later and there was less, you know, there were fewer barriers, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, who, who got a chance to rebut who uh, Quigley could never rebut um, Ferguson's uh uh, judgment of his his scholarship, but Ferguson can rebut quickly all day long. That's an imbalance. Whose claims are more plausible? Definitely Ferguson's. You know, if you, anytime that you claim there's a massive important group that nobody really recognizes and is doing all kinds of crazy important stuff, that's less plausible than just saying nope, nah. And then evidence. There's also the, like what I said about the the Anglo American establishment. It's, it's published in 1981. Someone claims to have gotten you know, and they, they say in the the publisher says in that first edition, the story of how we came across this manuscript is for another time. Don't. It's for now. You're writing about it in the forward to this damn book. You need to put it in there because then other editions take out even what you said, and then I come along and I see it and I I got nothing. That story, I don't know where you told it. I know a lot about Quigley, more than the average person. You didn't tell it anywhere where I've, where I've been able to find it, so screw you. Did they really say what, what's written? Did they really, is this book really written by Quigley, you know, the later one? You could always doubt that. I'm, I'm not so worried about Ferguson. I mean, as long as you trust the printing process, Ferguson said what, what's in his books. Um, one last thing I want to say about the Rhodes-Milner group that I, I sort of mentioned that in the notes and it, like, sort of seamlessly move on to the psychopath idea. This, this, it's not the same to not care about what people think is, is, you know, might or might not be the same as this sort of psychopathy idea. And um, uh, Quigley does not call this Rhodes-Milner group psychopaths at all. Quite the contrary, actually. He says most of their motives were noble and he agrees with most of what they did. Okay, enough. Enough about Quigley, Ferguson, and the Rhodes-Milner group. Um, let's talk about psychopaths. And 1155. Um, well, I said one, maybe like the, I, I just out of the depths of my memory, I said one in 25 of us are psychopaths. No, it's not one in 25. It might be one in 25 of like business people or like CEOs in particular, but it's not one in 25. It's more like one in a hundred. Um, I cite in the notes, you know, this, it's hard to know. Like, what is a psycho? How do you know? How do you detect them? Like, could it, would all the psychopaths in the football stadium, please stand up so that you can be counted. Just thank you. I mean, how do you find, okay. So it's tough stuff, but it's not one in 25. It might be that high for, uh, people with a lot of power. Um, so that's in the section, that, that's in the notes of Re33, uh, it's in the section Perception, Power, and Deception, footnotes 6 and 7. Um, finally, I just wanted to 
do a better job explaining this distinction I'm trying to make between people who want power only and people who want power and attention. And I think it comes down to microeconomics. When I was writing this up in the notes, that's that's the way it felt right to 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 um, uh, to say it. Okay, so I, I said that so first talking about the group. The group, you know, the kind of people who want power and attention. I said the upshot is that seeking attention is wasteful unless that attention increases one's power more than any alternative uses of those res- uses of those resources would do. Um, that's microeconomics. Like it's not. It's 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 um, it's it's comparing things at the margin. What's the marginal gain of whatever you're trying to get? Uh, 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 you know, between two activities. So you don't say, "Is this will this make me money or will this, you know." Or will it not make me money? You say, will it make me more money than the opportunity cost of, you know, which is to say the th- other thing that I could have done that would have also made me money, but maybe a different amount. So, uh, oh, okay, here's a well, okay, perfect example, you know, starting a podcast business. Okay. The opportunity cost of starting a podcast business is whatever my previous job was, that income over the period of time that I, you know, over the period of time that I do the podcast business instead of that. And, you know, in theory, you have to consider other human factors, but, you know, in just terms of microeconomics. Okay, so same thing with power and attention. Anytime they're pursuing these people who want both, anytime they're pursuing attention, that's wasteful if it doesn't gain them more power than just pursuing power as such. Sometimes pursuing attention, like getting a big audience of people who agree with you and are willing to do your bidding, that increases your power. But that's microeconomics. That's what I mean by that. As for deception, we're just, we're just reading the notes here again. As for deception, positive and negative, de- de- negative deception about others and about oneself must pass the test of being the best use of resources or else it is wasteful. Same thing. Just comparative uh, uh, opportunity cost at the margin sort of thinking. If you only want power, the upshot is that for the power only type, there's no – I'm reading now. The upshot is that for the power only type, there's no competing goal. No temptation to allocate resources to actions not increasing actual power. The power-only creature is more focused than the power-attention creature. That's the bottom line. Even if, oftentimes, the attention-seeking accrues power in, in, a, in a good use of resources, you know, uh, um, uh, opportunity cost is lower than the, the gain of, of seeking that power— at the end of the day, the one who only wants power, maybe this Rhodes-Milner group, certainly psychopaths, um, they don't, they're never tempted to pursue something that isn't related to their, their, that goal, that goal of power or whatever the thing, whatever form of power, exercise of power that uh, attracts them. Okay, that's it. Did I explain what microeconomics? I didn't give the definition, but I'll give a definition in the notes. Micro, I'm not going to say it here, but it'll be in the notes. It's from a good economics textbook. Um, that's it. Okay. No amendments, corrections. Um, everything will be in the PDF notes, retrace.com, R-E-T-R-A-I-C-E.com. This is segment number 38. Next one's tomorrow, 11 p.m., 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, sorry, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. Signing off.